Parashat Tetzaveh will begin at the end. And the truth is that Tetzaveh is really part of one unit, the unit being Teruma and Tetzaveh, two parashiyot which are principally concerned with the instruction for the construction of a sanctuary for God. Asuli Mikdash V'Shachanti Betocham, it says at the beginning of Teruma, um, you should make me a sanctuary and I will dwell among them. And appropriately, uh, the way the sequence works, the first thing that is discussed is the most sanctified, the most sacred, the Aaron Habrit, the Ark of the Covenant, which was going to be placed when it was made inside the Holy of Holies, the Kodesh Kodashim, um, together with its cover, the Kaporet, which we discussed last week, the Keruvim, subsequently the Menorah, and then the Shulchan, and then the construction of the Mishkan itself. There's something missing. There were three items of furniture, or three uh, vessels, three objects that were placed inside the sanctuary section of the Mishkan, and they were the menorah, the candelabra, which was lit every day, the uh, shulchan, that was the table upon which they placed showbread, and obviously the third thing was the mizbeach hazahav, the golden altar, also known as the mizbeach hakatoret, the incense altar, or the altar of incense, the way we refer to it in English. However, surprisingly, um, although you wouldn't notice it at the time, that is excluded from the initial instruction. It's not in the correct place in the sequence. Uh, the Mishkan or the instructions to construct the Mishkan itself, the housing that will contain these objects is described, is instructed, following which in Tetzaveh we have instructions on the priestly vestments and then a long list of korbanot, the sacrifices that should be brought when the uh, Mishkan is finally set up. And right at the end, tucked away at the very end, it's the beginning of the chapter that actually leads into Parshat Kitisa, at the beginning of chapter 30, we begin a series of psukim as follows, Vasita Mizbeach Miktar Ketoret, you shall make an altar for burning incense. You should make it of acacia wood. And the truth, and it goes on, the psukim go on, and the truth is it's in completely the wrong place. And one has to wonder immediately, because whenever there is something in the Torah that is inexplicable, it is done for a particular purpose. And all the Torah commentaries focus on this particular anomaly. Why is it that the incense altar, which is an integral part of the furnishings of the uh, sanctuary itself, is left all the way until the very end, until we hear it mentioned. Why can't it be in its correct position when those things were instructed? So let's look at the Ramban. It's source two in your, uh, in your sheets. Mizbeach haktoret min hakelim hapnimiyim haya, says the Ramban, Nachmanides, that the uh, altar of incense was one of those vessels, was one of those objects that was inside the sanctuary itself. It would be appropriate, says the Ramban, for that 
um, object for the altar of incense to be mentioned alongside the table of showbread and the candelabra, the menorah, because it was placed together with them in the sanctuary. And later on, when the actual construction of the Mishkan is described, when Betzalel ben Uri ben Chur, together with Moshe Rabbeinu and his team, constructs the Mishkan, it is in the correct place. It is identified alongside its counterparts in the sanctuary. But here it's not. Avalatam lazkirokan, says the Ramban. The reason why it is mentioned here. Achar ha-mishkan korbanot. After we've talked about everything to do with the Mishkan and its construction in every minor detail of things which are much less relevant in terms of their importance than the altar of incense, and after all the korbanot, the sacrifices that are going to be brought, right at the end, why is it mentioned there? Because at the end of everything, right at the end, at the end of chapter 29, before we begin this, chapter 29, verse 43, God says to Moshe Rabbeinu, V'nikdash b'chvodi. They will be sanctified in my glory. V'nikdash b'chvodi. V'nikdash, this sacredness, the sanctity of the place through my glory. That is the closing end of all the instructions that are contained before. The Shachanti Betoch Bene Israel, and I will dwell among the Jewish nation. That is the um, two Pasukim later, Pasuk Memhe, and I will dwell among them. So there is a sense of um, literary connection with Vasuli Mikdash the Shachanti Betocham. And then at the end of chapter 29, it says, V'nikdash b'kvodi, which is the same word as mikdash, V'shachanti betoch b'nei Yisrael, V'shachanti betocham. So there is, there is this connection, this literary association between the beginning of Terumah and the end of chapter 29, before we begin talking about the, um, the altar of incense. Amar. But the idea here is that what is the Mikdash Ketoret for? It is there to, to um, be lit. The incense has to be um, lit up so that, it, that the aroma fills the space. Why should that be done? Now that becomes an, an incumbent job something that is important for the Jewish nation to do through the priest, because they need to light it to honor the glory of God. It's a new thing. It's a new, it's an additional item that's not to do with the sanctity of the temple itself. It's not to do with the fact that God is dwelling among them. It's an additional item that um, displays a recognition of the fact that God dwells among them, and that in his holiest place, they must light this aromatic incense so that the smoke can fill that space and therefore demonstrate, thereby demonstrate that they have the respect that they need to have for God. Shenemar, yasimu ketora be'apecha. You should place the incense, the smell of the incense in your nostrils. That's what it says right at the end of Devarim, chapter 33. The whole purpose of the ketoret is that we should have this feeling that God dwells among us. 
Man v'chara api, it says somewhere in Devarim as well. That's chapter 31, verse 17. And the Ramban can um, find other allusions to this idea that the Ketoret, the Ketoret is, seems to be the aspect of the um, temple duty which the people most associate with. In fact, we know that the two sons of Aharon, Nadav and Abihu, they went in to the temple sanctuary uninvited. What did they do when they went there? They lit incense. What is it that Korach, and we'll see more about that later on, what is it that Korach wanted to do and what Moshe Rabbeinu instructed him to do together with his congregation, together with his group of um, the rebellious mob that ganged up against Moshe and Haron is that they should take pans and light Ketoret. Ketoret seems to have been the go-to process by which they could recognize the sanctity and the sacredness of this um, holy space. Um, that they should know my honor and my glory. And it's more than that, says the Ramban. In fact, it is through the Ketoret that they will recognize that they need to be respectful and careful of my presence. And that's why it says in Pasuk Vav, right here in chapter 30, You need to put the Mizbeach, even though this is mentioned right at the end, it's an add-on, it's an additional item of furniture, that um, that you put in to the uh, that was put into the instructions. It was not something that was included in the main um, reckoning in the main list of items that are associated with the construction of the Mishkan. Nevertheless, where do you put it? In the place that is closest to the holiest spot in the sanctuary, just beyond the curtain to the holy of holies. Why? Put it right before the curtain, which is next to the Ark of the Covenant, before the cover, which is on the Edut itself, because it's from that space that I will speak to you, that I will communicate with you, Moses. What is the purpose that this pasuk um, feels the need or that God would have felt the need to give this instruction to Moshe? It's very wordy. He could simply say, place it before the curtain. Why does he need to say, There's so many levels to this instruction. What was the necessity for adding all these words to the instruction? And it should simply have said, says the Ramban, Why didn't you just say, put it in front of the Aron Ha'edut in the sanctuary, in the holy space. The whole purpose of it is to tell us about this fact, that not only did this serve the purpose of us contributing something, us, the Jewish nation, contributing something to the presence of God and acknowledging the presence of God through um, preparing and lighting up this incense in the sanctuary. But furthermore, it acts as some sort of protection. Um, it it uh, adds a layer of protection to the sanctuary itself, as I'm going to explain right now. This I'm taking from 
um, the Parsha blog. Uh, it was prepared some years ago and I've put it here in the source sheet. You can take a look at it in greater detail. Says, um, says this particular parish explaining the Ramban. The incense, incense altar sits immediately in front of the curtain that separates the holy from the holy of holies. Behind that curtain, unimaginable holiness lies. Should anyone enter, they would be incinerated by the holy fire. In other words, and one must understand this, what happened to Nadav and Avihu, and what would happen to us and any Kohen who comes into proximity. And as the Ramban tells us, that the whole idea of the Mishkan is to create a physical presence for all time um, of Harsinai, of the revelation at Sinai. And we know that there was a certain point beyond which the nation could not proceed because of the extent of the holiness and the sacredness. There was this interface between God and the physical universe, the material universe at that particular point. And that is represented by the Mishkan. And there is a point, and Midrash says, that the Jewish nation was in danger of expiring. We know that, for example, one of the reasons that's given, that only the first two commandments of the Ten Commandments of the Decalogue were heard by the nation was because at that stage it became clear that human bodies, a material human being, would not be able to continue living with the infusion of such extensive holiness because they're hearing the word, the voice of God, who's um, pronouncing the Ten Commandments. So therefore, at that stage, it needed to be Moshe Rabbeinu who repeated it. He had this capacity to handle uh, the presence of God and the voice of God, whereas ordinary mortals did not have that capacity. And we need to know that there is a level of holiness, there is a le level of sanctity, of purity, of spirituality that we cannot come into proximity to and that if we do we are endangering ourselves that's what happened to Nadav and Avihu they weren't prepared for what they found in the sanctuary and even if their intentions were positive were good um, they and they uh, they were doing it perhaps for the right reasons the idea is that they hadn't fully prepared themselves they weren't commanded to do it they weren't doing it properly whatever the many of the, one of the many reasons that are given but the idea is that there is um, a uh, a presence of God a Shekhinah to which we cannot have proximity because it's so incredibly holy it's so incredibly spiritual and, and this is of course a little bit of a paradox because if God said Vasuli Mikdash that I will uh, that make me a Mikdash so that I will dwell among them and then that proximity is life endangering then what is the point of it and the point is says the Ramban that we should know that such holiness exists and that our proxim proximity to it is important, but close proximity is dangerous. We need to know that there's a level beyond which we cannot ascend. And that is the purpose of the Mikdash in our presence, that there is a point that is beyond our physical ability to uh, to relate to. And that is the purpose of the Ketoret. Let me continue here from this piece. Therefore, um, should anyone enter, they would be incinerated by the holy fire. And it continues. Yet that is exactly what the high priest had to do on Yom Kippur. He would enter the Holy of Holies and he would light the incense. So why did he light that incense? The answer is, and this is based on the Ramban, when the incense burns, it creates smoke. And once that smoke has become a thick cloud that fills both the Holy of Holies, holy and the Holy of Holies, 
the Kohen Gadol, the high priest, can remove the parochet and enter the Holy of Holies. What does he see? Nothing. He cannot see beyond uh, the smoke. The smoke has obscured everything. Actually, the visual contact between him and the Aaron Habrit, the Aaron Ha'idut, would cause him to no longer be able to live in this world. His neshama wouldn't be able to take it, being in a physical world, having come to such into such close proximity to the Aaron. The only way to protect him, and this is of course extremely interesting, the eye is the window into the soul. That which we see has an impact on our neshama. The whole concept, you can hear something, it's never quite the same as seeing it. When your eye sees something, the impression it leaves is not just a physical impression on your brain, it it penetrates right the way through to your neshama. And the only way to the pre- protect the Kohen Gadol, who's been through, who knows, you can learn Masechet Yuma, and you will see the many different things the Kohen had to do to protect himself, to stay pure, to elevate himself to the level of purity that he could handle being in the Kodesh Kodashim on Yom Kippur. And nonetheless, he has to light that Ketoret so that the smoke fills up that entire space so that he won't visually come into contact with the Aron Ha'idut. He sees nothing. The whole area is covered with a thick cloud of incense and that protects the Kohen from God's presence and he can therefore approach God in that space as it were and live. Of course God is everywhere but the intensity of God in that space is such that if you would um, see it visually you wouldn't be able to stay in this physical material world. In this manner, Aaron used the incense to save the Israelite nation when a plague swept out from God, killing the people. What did Aaron do? What did he do? Aaron took a fire, and this is what it says in Bamidbar chapter Yudzain. He took a fire pan and placed the incense on it and atoned for the people. What did he do? The Pasuk says he stood between the dead and the living. The dead, they were gone. That smoke protected them from the wrath of God, which as it were, was among the people who had died. On the other side, the incense acted as a barrier, blocking God's presence from harming anyone else. God, in that moment of truth, in that moment of justice, as it were, had no visual contact and they, with the Jewish nation and they had no visual contact with him. Obviously, these are, these are ideas that are well beyond our understanding. These are Kabbalistic ideas. But the idea being that this visual contact is extremely important. It was the incense that protected the nation. Aharon understood the message of the incense. Um, therefore, while every other item in the Mishkan was designed so that God can dwell among the children of Israel, which is what it says. Remember, we've quoted the Pasuk. Uh, it was quoted by the Ramban. When, uh, um, the Pasuk says, V'shachanti betoch b'nei Yisrael. Right? V'nikdash b'kvodi v'shachanti betoch b'nei Yisrael. And are therefore included in God's instructions to build the Mishkan. This was not the case with the Mizbeach HaKtoret, with the altar of incense. That was designed to allow Israel to approach God. Everything else was so that God could dwell in the Mishkan. But how could we get close to God? Only through the presence of the Mizbeach HaZahav, the Mizbeach HaKtoret. It is therefore not a part of the Mishkan's grand design. Even though it is in the inner sanctum, it's in the sanctuary itself, and it's the closest item to the Holy of Holies, more than any other object which is in the Mishkan, 
its instructions were only given once the items that were part of the Mishkan's main purpose was completed. That is the idea of the Ramban. That is what the Ramban wants to say. Let's look at the Orachai. And he has an interesting um, suggestion, which, is, which doesn't really answer the question, but it makes sense of the question offering a solution without actually giving us an answer. And he says as follows, Mizbeach, and this, by the way, is not the Orachaim. Here, it's the Orachaim much earlier on in Parshat Turuma. Mizbeach hazahav matzinu she'asa shlomo achair v'ganaz l'shel Moshe k'mufurash b'divrei raboteinu zal. The Gemara in Menachot Daf Memtet says that Shlomo HaMelech, King Solomon, built a temple many hundreds of years later. It was a permanent temple in Jerusalem. The permanent temple in Jerusalem contained, it was more or less a carbon copy, um, uh, obviously larger and built with bricks and mortar, etc., or stone, or whatever it was. But in, in essence, it was a copy. It was modeled on the Mishkan that was instructed here in the Midbar many hundreds of years earlier to Moshe Rabbeinu, to Moses. And the idea was that Shlomo wanted to create a permanent representation of this temple. The question that is posed in Menachot is what happened to the vessels that were used by Moshe Rabbeinu and for the many hundreds of years afterwards in the Mishkan, in the temporary uh, um, sanctuary that was used by the Jewish nation all the way through until King David brought it to Jerusalem. He danced before the Aaron when it was brought into Jerusalem, knowing that imminently a temple would be built, even though in the end he didn't build it and it was his son Shlomo HaMelech who built it. What was, what was done with this um, Aaron, this menorah, this shulchan, and this mizbeach, hazahav, etc.? What were done with these items? So the only one we know for certain was not used in the temple of Shlomo HaMelech was the mizbeach hazahav, was this altar of incense. All the other ones, uh, the Aaron was used. And we know that there were other menorot, other candelabras and other tables that were made. There is a debate um, in the Talmuds to whether they were used or whether the, uh, the original ones were used. But the one thing we know that was not used in the Temple of Solomon, because for some reason it was treated differently, says the Orachaim, was the Mizbeach HaZahav. Why? So he suggests, intriguingly, that the reason Shlomo HaMelech chose to hide it, it was hidden away. And we don't know to this day where it was placed and what happened to it. That original Mizbeach HaZahav, the golden altar of incense that was inside the sanctuary of Moses, which was hidden away. We don't know why it was hidden away, but we know that it was hinted at in this exclusion of the Mizbeach HaZahav from everything else. We know that Shlomo HaMelech drew on the fact that this uh, instruction was not a part of the general instructions of the Mishkan. He drew on that fact um, as, the, uh, as the cause for him to hide it away and never use it. So the Orachaim is hinting to us here, or, or telling us very specifically, that there was something extraordinary, something special, something about the Mizbeach HaZahav, which made it different than everything else. We now have, he doesn't, but we now have to try and understand, try and draw out some meaning in the Mizbeach HaZahav to tell us what made it extraordinary. The Ramban has already attempted to do that by saying that the Mizbeach HaZahav was something 
which belonged as it were to the people. It was first of all our contribution to the sanctity of the space and moreover even more than that the Ramban is telling us that this was the method by which we were protected from the intensity, from the concentration of holiness that was contained in the Mishkan. But let's look at the Sephorno. This is page three of your source sheet. The Sephorno says as follows. I've got it in both Hebrew and in English in the source sheet. I'm going to read the English. The reason that this altar has not been mentioned together with all the other sanctuary vessels, details of which the Torah described in very, much, in very great detail in Parashat Terumah, is as follows. This altar was not intended to ensure that the Shekhinah made its permanent home among the Jewish people, as was the purpose of all the other furnishings of the Mishkan. Okay? So he is, he is basing himself on the Ramban. That's what he uses as the foundation for what he is about to say. In essence, the Mizbeach HaZahav had a separate function. The function wasn't um, it had another function. Its purpose was also not to attract the glory of God into the Mishkan, as was the purpose of all the sacrifices, burnt offerings, gift offerings. So the reason why it's not mentioned together um, or included in the, in the instructions that had mentioned the Korbanot, and of course the Mizbeach and the Choshet, the copper altar which was kept in the courtyard upon which all the sacrifices, animal and meal sacrifices were brought, is because it was the whole purpose of that Mizbeach, of the Mizbeach Azahav, the altar of incense, was not to attract the glory of God, which was their purpose. Right? Why? Um, concerning God's response to those offerings, we can see, and this is what it says in the at the end, which we've mentioned already, the Ramban mentioned, that v'nigdash b'kvodi, that I will be sanctified through my glory, the glory that will be brought to me through the sacrifices that you will bring. That is the whole purpose of the Mishkan. That fits in with this rubric. That fits into this picture, this paradigm. The Mizbeach HaZahav is something different. Moses himself had, confer had confirmed that this was the purpose of the furnishings in the Mishkan. What, why, what did he say? As a result the glory of God will become manifest to you, right? That's what the Pasuk says. The sole purpose, however, of the golden altar was to honor God after he had accepted our service with goodwill in mornings and in the evenings. So the idea of the Ketoret, when we brought the Ketoret in the morning, was because God had accepted our offerings in the morning. In thanks to, for that, we brought the incense. It was our contribution. Basically, what the, the Sephorno is doing is padding out. He's explaining what the Ramban means. The Ramban means that by us bringing incense, or by the Kohen on our behalf, bringing incense in the sanctuary, we are acknowledging God's presence and the fact that he has accepted our offerings, and that we, he has been sanctified and his presence is among us. And we are recognizing that. We are acknowledging that by bringing it in the mornings. And then again at the end of each day in the Mishkan in the evenings. We use this altar as a means to welcome God's presence by presenting him with the incense. 
And he concludes by saying that it says in the um, it says in Divrei Hayamim it says Havu Lashem Kavod Shemo Mincha That pasuk he said alludes to this idea that by us bringing the Ketoret, we are acknowledging that God has come down and accepted our offerings and that he is now in our midst. So there is a, a reaction. There's the action of God by Veshachanti Betocham, and then there's our reaction. Of course, that reaction cannot come as part of the instruction to build the Mishkan. It can only come after those instructions have concluded. The Kliakar says something slightly different and quite beautiful. He says as follows, I'm going to read the Hebrew and translate. He begins by saying that both of the altars, the one that was outside the sanctuary on which the animal and meal offerings were brought, and the one inside the sanctuary, the golden one, on which the incense was brought and offered, both of those have got to do with the fact that we, as the Jewish nation, need to have ourselves cleansed of sin by bringing these offerings. However, the Mizbeach outside, the copper altar on which the animal sacrifices, the bird sacrifices and the meal offerings were brought, they are to cleanse the body, the material, physical body of the effect of sin. You see, Sin is an interesting thing. We consider sin to be a totally spiritual affair. That means if I don't keep Shabbat, the effect that it has is totally on my neshama. It doesn't have any effect on my body. If we eat non-kosher food, yes, we've done something wrong, but food is food, it's sustenance, it's nutrition, and we shouldn't have eaten the pork, we shouldn't have eaten the meat and milk together. But if we've done it, we can um, repent. It's a spiritual sin. It has no effect on us whatsoever. The um, idea that the Kliakar wants to present us with is quite different. That we do affect our bodies. We detach our bodies from its mission. Its mission is the body is really the um, tool that we can use in the service of God. We have been given the vehicle to serve God. And in the same way as we have a car that takes us from one place to another. And if we don't put the right gas in the car, right? If we feed the car trace gas, as it were, right? And we put that gas in the car, we're ruining the engine. Now, the, the car may drive. And it's true, the car may drive for many miles. But we have actually done something very bad to the car. If we crush the car, the car may drive. If we damage the car in some other way, we make it ugly, the car may drive. However, we have damaged that car. We have caused that car damage and we need to take it to a mechanic or repair shop so that we can repair that damage. How do we repair the body? What can we do in terms of teshuvah, of kapara for the body, the vehicle that we do mitzvot and don't do averot, if we haven't behaved as we should have behaved according to the instructions that God has given us, what can we do? We bring korbanot. Let's just let me read the kliakar. It's beautiful. On the mizbeach outside in the courtyard, 
on which we bring the Balei Chaim, the live animals, that come, as it were, in our place. Ki yesh lahem dimyon el chomer ha'adam utmunat ha'mizbeach yochiach ki zot komato dmutal komat adam beinoni gimel amot. The idea of the mizbeach is, first of all, that the animals that are brought upon it are, as it were, in our place. And we identify with animals. We identify with birds, right? We do identify with a live creature. They have legs. They have eyes. They make noises. They communicate. And we know when a cow is killed, the, you know, that we somehow, we may not see ourselves in them because they're not human, but we identify with them as mammals, as birds. We do identify with them. Therefore, when they are killed, and we've discussed this before um, at the beginning of Vayikra, one year I gave a share about the necessity of sacrifice and the discussion in Maimonides and other commentaries about what sacrifice means, why there was animal sacrifice in the Jewish nation, uh, um, included animal sacrifice in its, um, in its religious duties. The idea being that we see the animal and we know that there's something that we have done wrong. Our bodies have not behaved and this somehow animal is, is going to suffer on the Mizbeach. That is a, a dogma, an example of our suffering, and it will hopefully um, create within us the spirit of, of atonement so that we can atone for the sins that we may have done. There is this physical resemblance between us and the animals that we can associate ourselves to so that we know we've done something wrong. We can use that as the platform to do teshuvah. Similarly, the Mizbeach was three amot high, which is the same size about... Uh, uh, um, one and a half meters high. It's the same height of the average person. Uh, and the idea being that um, the average person would stand next to the Mizbeach and would identify with that height and realize that it's his physical body that needs to have atonement. And through the Mizbeach and what we're doing on the Mizbeach, that atonement can be achieved, right? The animals that are brought are the same as the nefesh adam to the animal soul or the animal um, life that is within us, within a human being. Nefesh tamurat nefesh. One soul comes in the place of another. That part of our soul, which is an animal soul, is represented by the animal that is brought on the Mizbeach. And now he has a question which he answers beautifully. What about the poor man who cannot bring an animal or a bird sacrifice? He's simply too poor. The only sacrifice that he can bring, the only offering that he can bring in the temple is a meal offering, a flower offering, a korban mincha. How is he going to be atoned for? So the pasuk says the kliyakar that is used in the Torah to describe such a person is v'nefesh ki takriv. When a nefesh comes forward to bring an offering, and the allusion here, the literary word association here is that the nefesh brings the korban mincha to tell us that in such a situation where you're not able to bring a korban, the nefesh ki takriv is sufficient for us to be forgiven, to be atoned for, in terms of the fact that the association of the offering, even though it's a korban mincha, 
is enough for us to be atoned for in those terms. By the way, today we don't bring animal sacrifices at all. How do we atone for our sins? We atone through, for the sins by saying the words of the parshiot in the Torah and in the Mishnah, um, in the Talmud, about the korbanot. That is the way that we achieve atonement for the sins that we have committed, by associating ourselves not with a physical live animal, but with the mention of animal sacrifice in the Torah. Those ideas will will waken up in our minds and we will have this idea that our, our bodies need a cleansing. We need to go through this cleansing process and the way to do it is through this form of sacrifice. But we've only dealt with the animal in us. We've only dealt with the mammal, right? It's the nefesh ha that we've dealt with. What about the nefesh ha'elyon? What about the the exalted soul that is within us, how is that going to be atoned for by killing an animal? An animal doesn't have that um, exalted nefesh. The animal only has an animal nefesh. How are we going to resolve the problem that we've only gone so far and not beyond in achieving the atonement for the human being who has committed the sin, who's not done the mitzvah or has done something wrong? Aval mikomakom. The elevated soul also needs atonement. It has become devalued, it's become impure within the body that's been damaged, as it were, by committing this sin. And it's not been atoned for through the... Uh, through the sacrifice of the animal. They cannot be compared. You can't compare a cow who has no neshama to a human being that has a neshama. Because we know that the soul of a human being never dies. It elevates to shamaim and it can be reborn in a person according to tradition and certainly at the end of time in the messianic era it will re be reborn again in a body so the idea that this can be compared to an animal soul which simply lives to animate the animal during its lifetime but once the animal dies that soul is gone and it's never going to come back it never returns there's no such thing as reincarnation for animals Sorry for all you dog lovers out there. Your dog is not coming back. How is it possible to say that an animal can act as a comparison, as a replacement, as somehow an atonement, a form of atonement for a, a human being whose neshama lives forever? Okay, and therefore. Tziva el chay lasot mizbeach haktoret. God instructed us to make an altar of incense that allows this beautiful aromatic smoke to rise up for God. It's an illusion. It's somehow to evoke this idea that the neshama rises up and doesn't go down. This aromatic, um, this aromatic smell that comes from the incense is to invoke in us this idea that our neshama hasn't been cleansed by the, by the animals that have been sacrificed or the birds that have been sacrificed on the Mizbeach in the courtyard. And we need still a kapara for our neshama, our elevated soul. 
And the idea being that this aromatic smoke of, uh, of the beautiful incense, the ingredients of the incense, is the way that we can achieve kapara for anashama. Says the kliakar, we have two mizbechot. We have the Mizbeach, which is the general Mizbeach that's included in the instruction for the construction of the, of the Mishkan. And that makes perfect sense. As part of the Mishkan, we need such a Mizbeach, but it's not sufficient. The ultimate form of Mizbeach is the Mizbeach HaKtoret. That isn't included in the main instruction, but that is there for that additional bit of Teshuvah of Kapara that is needed for the cleansing of a human being who has been contaminated by the sin, by the, by the Avera, by the Chet. Let's look at the Hamek Davar, a beautiful idea. He is obviously aware of the question of all the earlier commentaries. He was a 19th century commentary, the Natsiv, the Rosh Hashiva of Elohim, Rabbi Naftali Tzvi Yehuda Berlin. He is aware of all the other commentaries, but he comes up with his own idea. Hine, behold, Hapele Yadua b'Mefarshim. The question, the wonder, is well known among the Mefarshim Harishonim, the original commentaries on the Torah. Lemain it acher masay ze hamizbeach shebehechal laachar kol hamasim. Why is it that we um, leave until the end? This, the creation of this particular altar inside the sanctuary after all the actions that have been taken or the description of all the actions that need to be taken in order to construct the Mishkan. It would have made much more sense for this instruction to be included together with those other items that we've discussed, the menorah and the Shulchan in Parshat Turumah. It appears to me let me first describe to you a Gemara in Yuma. The Gemara, the tractate in the Talmud that discusses what needs to be, be done on Yom Kippur. Demand Amar, Diktoret Mechaperet Alashon Hara, Shehu Avon Hachamur Ben Adam Lechavero. There's one opinion. There is one particular opinion in the Mesechet Yuma in the tractate about Yom Kippur, which tells us what was the purpose of the Ketoret. The purpose of the Ketoret was as a, an act that was done to cleanse the people of the sin of slander, Lashon Hara, bad things that people say about each other, which undermines the fabric of society, the fabric of community. What, what does that mean? Says the Natsiv, says the Hamek Davar. That means that the, that the primary purpose of Ketoret is, is to remind us how important it is to be good-spirited and to be kind to each other and to create a kind and just and friendly community and, and society at large. Why? And the whole thing is, and he brings scriptural proof, which I'm not going to give you, that um, in fact, the aroma, the whole idea of aroma is there as a, a conceptually reminds us of of kindness that one person does or people do for one another. And for this reason, the, uh, the whole idea of Ketoret needs to be mentioned totally separately. This is not about the glory of God. 
This is about the um, importance of a just and kind community and society. That's a separate item. That's not an item that you include in the main instruction for the Mishkan. That can only be said right at the end, totally separately, but it is connected. And in fact, the main um, proof for this can be found in Tractate Yuma. A fascinating story recalled in Masechet Yuma. Rebchia Bar Avin said he heard from Yehoshua, Rabbi Yeshua ben Karcha, one of the original Tanaim of the Mishnah, of the um, original text of the Talmud. And he said as follows, Sachli zaken echad. I once met this elderly man and he told me the following story. Pam achat halachti Shiloh. There was one time where I went to the city of Shiloh. Shiloh was the town in which the Mishkan um, the Mishkan, the temporary sanctuary which was built by Moses, eventually found its home. And it was there for more than 350 years. It was there for a very, very long time. And then it was um, dismantled. And eventually the Beit HaMikdash was built in Yerushalayim. But the original walls um, that housed this, that surrounded the Mishkan, the temporary Mishkan that protected it from the elements... That they remained there. And this elderly man once went to Shiloh. And he was there, I guess, in the ruins of the temple of Shiloh. And this must have been many hundreds of years later because there'd been the first Beit HaMikdash for hundreds of years. And then that was destroyed. Then there was the second Beit HaMikdash for hundreds of years. This was before, probably, before its um, destruction. Um, and, you know, almost a millennium had gone past. And he went to Shiloh. Said the old man to Rabbi Yeshua ben Korcha, do you know what? I could still smell the aroma of the ketoret that they used to light, that they used to, that used to be lit by the Kohanim. In Shiloh, in the Mishkan, I could still smell that aroma between its walls. It permeated the walls of the Mishkan in Shiloh, and I was there and I smelt it. That's what he told Rabbi Hoshua ben Korcha. Says the Hamik Davar, the Nitziv, V'hum Amar Temuah. It's a very, very strange story. It's a very strange story. What is the meaning of this story? Why would the smell endure? in Shiloh more than it would have endured in Jerusalem where the temples had stood for hundreds more years. yoter More than 800 years the Ketoret was, um, was there in Yerushalayim and obviously much closer in time to this elderly man. Why would the Ketoret have perpetuated for such a long period of time in Shiloh and yet in Yerushalayim we don't hear the same thing? Says the Natsiv, He continues the question. We know there was only 300 and something years in Shiloh. Ella, however. What is the essence of the location of Jerusalem as the ultimate location of Judaism? Do you know what it was? Torah. 
It became the center of Torah. It became the place from which Torah went and um, uh, um, was perpetuated throughout the world. What's the pasuk? He says it, because from Zion will the Torah go out, Udvar Hashem Mirushalayim, and the word of God from Jerusalem. The idea of Jerusalem, the identity of Jerusalem is the identity of Torah. That is what it stands for. That is what it's all about. Enken. And that's not the same thing, Bashiloh. Shiloh is not a center of Torah, as it were. The, the Beit HaMikdash Yerushalayim was a center which con- continuously propagated Torah. The Torah theme was its central theme. That was not the case in Shiloh. Shaya B'Shevet Yosef. Do you know where Shiloh is found? It's found in the, um, uh, the territory of the tribe of Joseph. Lo Olam Rov Torah. We know that the Gemara in Brochus tells us that there was such a lack of knowledge in Torah, in the Mishkan of Shiloh, that the Kohanim there were not well educated in Torah to the extent that the Gemara in Brachot tells us They didn't know that an ordinary non-priest was able to do the shechita of the Beit HaMikdash. They imagined that only they could do the, uh, the shechita, and they had to be taught this halacha. They were not aware of it. Torah wasn't the central theme of Shiloh. So what was the central theme of Shiloh? Says the Hamek Davar, V'chol yesod kedushat mishkan Shiloh, amad bizchut gemilut chasadim sherabah b'shevet Yosef. Do you know what it was? Shiloh was the epitome was the center, was the international headquarters of Gemilut Chasadim, of kindness. It may be that there were a tremendous amount of Amaratzim, of uneducated, at least in Torah, people living in Shiloh and operating the temple in Shiloh. But do you know what it was known for? Loving kindness, good deeds of a sound, just, kind community life. That was the, the theme of Shiloh. The whole idea is that um, in the Gemara that we heard earlier from Yuma, that the smell, the aroma of Shiloh perpetuated for a much greater amount of time than the Torah one of Jerusalem. The Gemilut, <coughs> the Gemilut Chasadim, the Milut Chasadim element of Shiloh is something that lasts much, much longer. It's much more enduring than the Torah of Jerusalem. And he continues as follows. The Hine. Kemon mitzvat shabin adam l'shamayim mugbelet al pia Torah v'chukotea bizman u'be'ofen ha'ma'aseh The idea of Torah is to regulate everything, that we know when we have to do things, how we have to do them, how much has to be put in or taken out, or the exact measurements, the weights, everything is is totally regulated when it comes to Torah. That's the whole idea, to teach you exactly how you're meant to do them things and when you're meant to do them. Ka'chaya haratzui, 
demayim she'al hamizbeach. And that's when they poured the water on the mizbeach. Mugbal kol korban kama hazaot uzrikot umatanot. Every aspect of the pourings and every aspect of the things that you did on the mizbeach outside in the azara, in the courtyard of the main korbanot, that was measured and regulated to the nth degree. Ukamog milut chasadim ein lo shiur. But do you know what has no measurement? Is never regulated? Kindness. There's no such thing as being too kind. You can't have too much kindness. Milut chasadim has no measurement, there's no maximum. Ugvul, en lo shiur ugvul. Kach ketoret, en lo shiur kamalahaktir. So to the ketoret. There was no, there was no limitation. There's no maximum amount of ketoret that you can bring. It wasn't measured. The Torah doesn't tell you how much to bring, just that we have to bring it. And do you know why we have a measurement in ketoret? The chachamim hu shenatnu shi'ur pras b'shachrit upras bin harabayim. It was the rabbis much, much later who created limitations as to how much ketoret you should bring. But in the Torah... There's no instruction as to how much you should bring. That wasn't brought and it doesn't exist. Now we understand why the internal altar of incense, the one that was kept in the sanctuary, is kept apart, far apart from all the other kelim of the Mishkan. Um, that were kept in the sanctuary. Because they were mentioned and instructed upon close to the Aaron, the Ark of the Covenant, which contains the original script, the original text of the Torah, the Luchot and the Torah, that's where it's kept. And this needs to be kept as far away from that as possible, because that has no limitation. The Shulchan and the Norah have limitations. The Torah has no limitations to teach us this idea, the Gmilut Chasadim should never have any limitations. There's no laws concerning the Ketoret. The reason why it was put next to the Torah is so that these two things can unite together. The regulation of the Torah, the exact details of how we're meant to keep those specific mitzvot in the Torah that have those regulations, coupled together with the unlimited gmilut um, chasadim, the aspect of our lives that has no limitations, united together, they are so powerful. So the Mizbeach HaKtoret came together, comes together with Aron Ha'idut, it's in close proximity. In the instruction part of it, it was very far apart. The Aron Ha'idut is right at the beginning and right at the end. After everything is mentioned, you have the Mizbeach HaKtoret. But when you put them in the Mishkan, they have to be close together. It's through the regulation of mitzvot and doing them properly. And the unlimited nature of the Gemilut Chasadim in our lives, that is what is the essence of a Jew. That is what God wants from us. And that is best epitomized by how the in, uh, instructions, where the instructions of the Mizbeach and the Aaron appear in the Torah, and how they're placed together, so close together, in the actual sanctuary itself. Let's look at the Me'ashiloach. Me'ashiloach. Very, very interesting man. He was the Ishbitzer Rebbe of the 19th century. And he came up with a very far-reaching idea. The Talmud teaches us 
הכל בידי שמיים, חוץ מירת שמיים. Everything is in the hands of heaven, besides for one thing, and that is how much we are in awe of heaven. That is something over which we have control. And it's through us having Yirat Shamaim that we will perform all the other mitzvot. Uh, but those things will ultimately be in the hands of heaven. In a certain way, they are faithful. But Yirat Shamaim, which is the be-all and end-all of who we are as people, as human beings, that is something which is left to us. Says the Ishbitzer, Hakol Bidei Shamaim, Afilu Yirat Shamaim. Don't imagine that Yirat Shamaim is something which is, uh, uh, which, uh, which is in our hands. We have no control over it. We have no control ultimately over anything. It's something which is given to us some, at some level. We may feel we have more control over it, but ultimately everything is in the hands of heaven. Everything is controlled by heaven. The problem with that concept, that philosophical, theological concept, is that it leads to a certain abandon of any personal responsibility for the things that you do. And this is what the Me'ashiloch is going to talk about now in this particular piece. A small section that I am quoting here. Hinei kol hakelim ne'emru beparshat truma chutz mimizbeach hazahav. As we've already mentioned, all the vessels, all the items of furniture are mentioned in parshat truma, except for this golden altar upon which you bring the incense. Why? So he brings a zohar mitam diita bezohar kadosh. Hainu shemeramez ki kol advarim anasim af poolam hazeh hakol mekushar. Bertson Hashemit Barach. It's to remind us, to give us a hint, that everything that is done, everything is done, that even in this world that we think that we've got control over, everything is connected to the will of God. Don't imagine that if something bad happens or something good happens and you had some personal involvement to make it happen, that somehow that means you made it happen. Everything that happens, good or bad, is ultimately the will of God. That is the way we need to think, and that's, that is ultimately our theological objective, at least according to the Mehashiloach. You must understand and appreciate, without God wanting something to happen, nothing, those things just wouldn't happen. You should know, and he recognizes it. Meshiloch says that ultimately, the ultimate um, feeling that may result from this concept, that everything is the will of God, is that you may think to yourself, what's the point of doing anything? You, be, you, know, you become stoic. That's one of the ancient um, Greek theological ideas or philosophical ideas, is that we have no control over anything. Everything that happens to us, it's just what is going to happen anyway. It's fate. It's, it's, it's predestined. We have no choice over anything because everything is the will of God. Everything that happens is in the hands of heaven. If something bad happens, we couldn't have, even if we would have prayed a million times, nothing would have changed anything because it's ultimately what God wants to happen. But for this reason, says the Meshiloch, fascinating, that this is the reason why the, parsha, the, the section that deals with the instructions to build this Mizbeach of Ketoret, the altar of incense, was not included in Parshat Truma. 
It's only after the Bigdei Kuna, the priestly vestments, have been described. The Parashat Tetzaveh, Hamorim al Godel Hayirah Ushmira Mahmedet Olamazeh, Mechemdat Olamazeh, Kimuvar Bigmara. What is the purpose of the priestly vestments? The priestly vestments were there to tell the Kohanim and those of the Jewish nation that saw them to remind them about certain aspects of weaknesses in human character and to remind them not to do those things. For example, the Gemara says, it's a Gemara in Erechim, Ketonet mechaper the Ketonet, the shirt, was to remind people that they shouldn't be murderers. The Gemara there discusses it and explains, etc. But the idea being that each one of the priestly vestments was there for a purpose, to remind people not to do the things which are bad. B'chein kulam, all of them were there for that purpose. Sh'akohen pa'al alidei b'gadav belev kol echad mi'israel yir'agadola. It was through the Kohen's work that, that he generated through his service and through the appearance of his vestments, that they should become Yeresha mind, that they should be constantly in the awe of heaven and not allow themselves to fall into the abandon of thinking to themselves, what's the point? Things are going to happen anyway. The incense, the aromatic incense, which is what generates joy and happiness, physical happiness. If that's the chemdat olam hazeh, which he alludes to a, li- a little earlier. The pleasures of the physical material world, which, which are symbolized by the ketoret, can only come after the priestly vestments. We can't have them earlier. We need to know about the priestly vestments. We need to know that we need to work on ourselves constantly to ensure that yirat shamayim is something that we're conscious of so that we don't fall into the traps of believing that it's, there's no point. And once we've done that, we can have the ketoret. We can have the aroma of the ketoret, which are the pleasures of Olam Hazer. And finally, the Kedushat Levi. This is source 8, page number 4 in your source sheet. The Kedushat Levi says as follows. Why is it that the Mizbeach ketoret comes right at the very end? He says as follows. I believe that at this point... After God, through Moses, had appointed Aaron and his sons as priests, there might have been a challenge to Aaron's appointment. As we find late in Parshat Korach, there was such a challenge. There was a revolt, a rebellion against Moshe Rabbeinu. How dare you appoint yourself and your brother and his children to all these positions, these high positions? What gives you the right? Right? Kulam Kedoshim, the whole, the whole nation, they're all holy. Why should you be the one specifically who chooses um, who should be the holy ones, who should be the leaders, the ritual leaders of the Jewish nation. But for this specific purpose, the Mizbeach HaKtoret is left right at the end. If the command to build the golden altar for the burning of incense was commanded only after Aaron's appointment, however, God hoped that it would become clear to the people that the appointment had not been at the instigation of Moshe Rabbeinu, but was the result of instructions that Moshe had received from God. In other words, it's not an add-on. If the add-on would have been Aaron and his children appointed to the kahuna, to the priesthood, people might have said, oh, until the Mizbeach HaKtoret or whatever would have come at the end, that was the instruction of God. The Aaron and his children bit that they are appointed to be the Kohanim, that was something that Moshe added on himself. But if it's 
integral. It's sandwiched between all the other things to the extent that there is a, a really important part of the Mishkan, of the sanctuary, which is left right until the very end. That means that Moshe Rabbeinu's um, instruction that he'd received from God, that Aaron and his children should be the Kanim, had actually been received from God. That's the idea of the Kedushat Levi. God hoped that it would become clear to the people that the appointment had not been at the instigation of Moshe Rabbeinu, but was the result of instructions that Moshe Rabbeinu had received from God, as became evident during the Korach controversy with incense. Isn't it interesting that incense became the medium, the vehicle by which Aharon became recognized as the priest and Korach was, as it were, exposed as a fraud that he could never be the priest. And it's simple to understand, says the Kedushat Levi. We're going to leave it here for today.